Well, it is really good to be here. Um, as Chris mentioned, my name is Dennis Allen. I co-pastor a church that is about a year old on the north side of Pittsburgh. It's my neighborhood. Our church is two blocks down the street from where I live. Um, I have five children, three more than I think I'm meant to have. Um, parents in the room might get that. Um, I was that person who, re- I still remember like dropping our two children off at my parents' house and Julia, my wife, and I are in the car driving to a wedding and just looking at her. And at that point in my life, being foolish enough to think that was our family and looking at Julia and saying, aren't you, like, isn't it so cool? Like, this is our family. We just dropped our kids off. This is, these are the people we'll get to grow old with. And I remember her just sitting in that seat in the car, not saying anything back to me. And I was like, we, we are done, right? That is all that we're going to have, right? And she was like, I don't, I don't think our family's done. And we agreed on one more. Um, and then God was just like, mm-hmm. So we, we, we got, yeah, there was a fourth pregnancy um, that, um, to be really honest, like after the third kid, um, when I found out, we found out Julie was pregnant for a fourth time, um, I was kind of like, I'm going to need a few weeks, God to like really work through this with you. Um, and then it was that first, uh, first appointment where uh, the doctor told us that there were two heartbeats, that I had to do some real talking with God after that. And I was like, we talked about two, and now there's five. Um, and they are amazing, all five of them. Um, Keely's 12, she's in seventh grade. She goes to Kappa in downtown Pittsburgh. And then... Um, Jay is 10, he's in fifth grade, Joel's eight, he's in third grade, and Clara and Everly are five, and they are starting kindergarten all at an elementary school right in our neighborhood. Um, This morning, what I wanted to talk through, it's something that's been really sitting with me a lot over these past several months. Maybe it's because Pastor Shaq and I just started this church in the north side and are really trying to figure out what does it mean for the people that we shepherd and pastor to become more like Jesus and how does that happen and what matters in the process of us becoming more like Jesus. But I think there's also very much a cultural reality and a cultural need for this conversation right now because I think we can look throughout our culture and we can see influential cultural leaders or political leaders who seem very content to like claim the name of Jesus but when you look at the fruit that their life produces or the way that they go about leading and speaking and interacting with people you're not really sure if they're just using the name of Jesus for a purpose or if they actually are followers of Jesus and I think in our culture today we need people who don't just stand on platforms and say that they're Christians. We need people who live quiet, humble lives demonstrating that they're Christians. That in order for our neighbors to know the person of Jesus, to find hope in his gospel, it takes humble, quiet Christians living out the mission of Jesus wherever we live. So this morning, we're going to spend a little time looking at a story that's in Mark chapter 6 that hopefully will help point us in this direction. If you have your Bibles or your devices, I'm going to be spending almost all of my time in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1. 
And just to put this into context as you're getting to that passage, this isn't the first time in this story Jesus is going to arrive on the Sabbath in a synagogue. It's not the first time in the Gospel of Mark that this happens. But we're going to see that as Jesus interacts with this group of people and in this particular synagogue, the way that they react to him is very, very different. So Mark chapter 6, verse 1, it reads this way. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Mark begins by telling us in verse 1, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. Jesus' hometown is Nazareth. It's a tiny, remote village. At most, it's believed 500 people lived there. It's agrarian. It's under-resourced. It's inconsequential even in Jesus' time. It wasn't mentioned once in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned once in the rabbinic literature of the time. It didn't even make the maps that were developed at the time. In verse 2, Mark tells us, when the Sabbath came, he, Jesus, began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Mark records a story of Jesus teaching in a different synagogue where the people who hear Jesus and hear his message are also amazed. That story is recorded in Mark chapter 1. And this is how that story starts. They, Jesus and his disciples, they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And then that story in Mark 1, it ends this way. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the region but here jesus enters the synagogue and begins teaching on the sabbath we're told that people are so amazed that when jesus left the synagogue the news spread all over the region that's mark chapter one people hear jesus teaching they recognize something unique about him and his message they recognize the power with which he communicates and they respond positively to it. But in our story, in Mark chapter 6, 
Jesus enters a synagogue. He begins teaching. We're told that people are amazed, but it becomes obvious pretty quickly that they're not amazed in the same way that the people were amazed in Capernaum. In verse 3, Mark records the reaction of the townspeople. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's the wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, John, Judas, and Simon aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. You can tell that they're annoyed, can't you? Where did this man get these things? It's his hometown. They know who he is. They know his name. They know all the years that he spent running around the village. They know the children that he played with. They know the street that he grew up on. They know about him. And yet, where did this man get these things? Isn't this the carpenter? For us, that might just sound like a descriptor because we know that Jesus was a carpenter. We know that his father was a carpenter. Carpenters were not well-respected culturally. They were at the low end of the socioeconomic spectrum. For them to say, isn't this the carpenter, is for them to take a shot at lowering him in everyone else's eyes. They're not lifting him up and honoring him here. They're taking a shot and trying to knock him down a peg. And then they finish, isn't this Mary's son? It's a patriarchal culture. They should have said, isn't this Joseph's son? But instead they said, isn't this Mary's son? Yet again, this verbal indicator that these people are not amazed at Jesus. They're annoyed by Him. This child who grew up in our village He's come back and he's preaching this message and we're not, we don't like it. It's like they were anticipating this homecoming where he would return home and tell them how great they all were. And he comes home with a very different kind of message, a message about the kingdom where he demonstrates all of his power. And they hear all of that and look at him and almost think, you're not better than us. Who do you think you are coming back here? Carpenter's son. Mary's son. Mark tells us that Jesus' ministry, which again, in Mark chapter 1 in Capernaum, literally resulted in the message of the gospel being spread all throughout the region. Here we're told that the response to Jesus' ministry and message is that it creates an offense And in the original Greek, that word means a stumbling block, an impediment that causes a person to trip and fall. In Mark chapter 1, the message goes forth throughout the region. It draws people to Jesus. But here, in Nazareth, in his hometown, that same message, that same ministry, that same power demonstrated, it causes people to stumble. It becomes an impediment to them. In Nazareth, 
Jesus' ministry places a stumbling block that causes people to distrust him and abandon him. It produces anger and it leads the people to try and kill him. Literally, seriously. In Luke's telling of this exact same story, Luke finishes it by saying that the people in the synagogue, Jesus' old neighbors, that they were so furious with him that they drove him out of town to the top of a cliff and tried to throw him off of it. That's how they're responding to this. Now, I want to take a moment and just sit with that. Jesus grew up in a particular place, Nazareth. He attended synagogue or church. He was taught about God's ways and character by the people he attended synagogue with. Many of the same people likely who are in this room hearing Jesus' message, who now want to kill him because of his message, are likely the people who were teaching him about who God was when he was a child. And now, that place and those people in that church reject him. And my guess is many of us, including me, have experienced rejection at the hands of people we grew up with. Churches that we loved. People who taught us about Jesus. In Jesus, we have a Savior who knows this kind of pain personally. And as we work through our own challenging experiences, we can draw near to Jesus confidently, knowing that in Him we have a high priest who sees us, hears us, sympathizes with us, and offers peace and comfort to us in the midst of our pain. The story in Mark chapter 6, it ends with these words, He was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. He wasn't amazed by their brokenness. He wasn't amazed by their sinfulness. He wasn't amazed by their desire to do evil or to harm Him. Mark tells us He was amazed by the hardness of their hearts and their unwillingness to believe in Him. Church, no one should have been more familiar with Jesus than the people from his hometown. Apparently, familiarity with Jesus isn't enough to produce faith in him. And it's certainly not enough to produce transformation in our hearts or in our culture. A few weeks ago, I watched a video of a talk that Kara Lawson, she's the head coach of the Duke women's basketball team, watched a video of a talk that she gave to her team. And in the talk, she said this to her team. She said, one of the things we talked about was how we all wait in life for things to get easier. Think in your own life if you've waited for something to get easier. It's what we do. We wait for stuff to get easier. It will never get easier. What happens is you handle hard better. That's what happens. 
Most people think it's going to get easier. It never gets easier. What happens is you become someone who handles hard stuff better. It's Kara Lawson, the head coach of the Duke women's basketball team. And I think there is wisdom in those words for all of us in this current cultural moment. I think there are many people, many that we know, who are familiar with Jesus and content in that. There are people in positions of political and cultural influence who seem content to use Jesus as a tool to gain and consolidate power. I think it's actually going to get harder for Christians who truly seek to follow Jesus. John the Baptist, when he saw a large group of Jewish religious leaders coming to him to be baptized in the Jordan, it's recorded in Mark, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. This is John the Baptist seeing all these religious leaders coming to him to be baptized. He looks at them and says, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And then he looks at them and says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew records Jesus looking at the preeminent religious leaders of his day, and I think it's important for us to remember that in this culture and time, there's not much separation between religious leader, cultural leader, political leader, and economic leader. These things are all intertwined. These are some of the most preeminent cultural and social leaders of the time. And John the Baptist looks at them and says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, even though you've got the right resume, even though you wear the right clothes, even though you go to work in the right place, your life is not producing what it's supposed to. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. But how do we do this? How do we learn to produce fruit in keeping with our repentance? The key, I think, is actually in a parable that many of us are familiar with, the parable of the sower. In that story, a crowd gathered around Jesus that was so large he had to get into a boat and push out from shore to teach the crowd. And he spoke to them in parables. And when he was done teaching, we're told that the crowd went home, but the disciples stayed. The crowd was content with the parable, but the disciples stayed. And they asked Jesus what the parable meant, and he taught them. And in teaching them, he said this, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. The secret of the kingdom of God is not given to the crowds. The secret of the kingdom of God is given to people who stay, to those who draw near to Jesus, to the people who never assume that they already know everything that there is to know about God, to the people who never settle into a kind of spiritual certainty, but remain humble and curious, knowing that there's something more and new and different about Jesus and the kingdom that we're supposed to be discovering and learning. This is a moment, I think, where we need to learn to handle hard better. We need to move beyond the crowds who are only familiar with Jesus and become disciples who follow Jesus, who stick with Him to learn the lessons. 
So then how do we become disciples of Jesus who handle hard better? And to do this, I'm going to rely a bit on the work of pastor and author John Mark Comer. First, we spend time with Jesus. The first and foundational thing that we need to do to be people who handle hard better, to be people whose lives produce fruit in keeping with our repentance, is we need to spend time with Jesus. If you think back through the week, if you think back through all the things that you gave your time to that filled your thoughts, how much of your time and how many of your thoughts were ordered around the person of Jesus? How often did you and me, how often did we filter the things we were thinking and processing and making decisions about through the lens of Jesus and His kingdom in His heart? Second, we learn Jesus' teachings. To be people who handle hard better and to produce fruit in keeping with our repentance. We spend time with Jesus and then we learn His teachings. So many of us, I think, have been taught to primarily and almost exclusively think about Jesus as our Savior. We think of Him as the one who came and dwelt among us, who lived a perfect life died an unjust death, and then rose from the dead all so that our past, present, and future sins can be forgiven and so that we can go to heaven when we die. But what if we allowed Jesus to be more than just our Savior? What if we thought about Him as the one person more than anyone else that we need to learn from in order to live well in our culture today? We believe that Jesus is the fullness of God revealed. That if we want to know what God is like, how God desires for us to live and love Him and our neighbors, then we need to look primarily to Jesus. And so I'll ask another question, this one the most painfully obvious pastoral question ever. Did you read your Bible this week? How much time did you scroll on your phone versus reading the words of God? I'm not just saying this to you, I'm reminding myself. It's amazing how much time we can spend just lost scrolling from video to video on our phone. If you are reading through your Bibles, and I don't want to step on Chris's toes here, and I, I won't. I'm just suggesting something in addition. Can I make a gentle suggestion? Read the Gospels. Right now in our communities, I think we desperately need Christians who know how to live and love like Jesus more than we need Christians who understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone. 
Third, we need to be people who take on Jesus' character in ways. We spend time with Jesus. We learn his teachings. And then we take on Jesus' character and ways. We become like him. This means that our character and our hearts become like Jesus' character and heart. That we're not racked with greed or lust. That we're unhurried and present to the people in front of us. That we're not addicted to digital technology. That if we have children, they don't have to compete with our phones for our attention. That we're not controlled by fear that our lives are marked by peace. We become like Jesus as we spend time with Him and as we learn His teachings and by choosing to bring ourselves into submission to Him. We recognize that we don't live as autonomous beings in the world, that we're dependent on Jesus. That He is the vine and we are the branches and our life and our character and our hearts are derived through His. And then lastly, we live Jesus' kingdom mission in the world. To become disciples who handle hard better. To be people who produce fruit in keeping with righteousness. We spend time with Jesus. We learn his teachings. We take on his character and ways. And then we live Jesus' kingdom mission in the world. And if we spend time in the Gospels, we'll see some consistent rhythms, some consistent practices of social and religious engagement that guide Jesus' life. In essence, there's consistency to the way in which Jesus lived his own kingdom mission in the world. And therefore, we should seek to emulate it. These are just a few of the ways that we see Jesus throughout the four Gospels living his mission. He taught the Gospel. He taught people the Bible of his day. He prayed. He made people whole. He freed people from the oppression of evil powers and principalities. He engaged in the work of social justice. He ate and drank with people, the tax collectors and sinners of his day. He fought pride and hypocrisy within the religious establishment of his day. And he even spoke truth to the political leaders of his day. So, we had We spend time with Jesus. We learn from Jesus. We become like Jesus. And then we live Jesus' kingdom mission. I think this is a little bit of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus and not someone who's just familiar with Jesus. And I think this is how we can posture ourselves to handle hard better. Because we're supposed to be ambassadors of God's kingdom. In our homes, our places of work, in our communities. We are to be ambassadors of God's kingdom. And it doesn't take much time looking at our culture or world right now to understand that our neighbors in our culture and our world desperately need ambassadors of Jesus. People who will point them to the kingdom of God. Familiarity with Jesus isn't enough to produce the kind of transformation we need or the kind of renewal our culture needs. Our neighbors and neighborhoods need us to move out 
from the crowds and draw near to Jesus so that we can be true disciples of Jesus for the well-being and flourishing of our communities, city, and country. So, I will pray, and then we will sing more together. Father, thank you. We could have this opportunity to reflect on these words recorded in Mark chapter 6. These stories that point us to these true and real moments in, in your son's life. Moments that we can talk through and wrestle through. Moments that we can try to work through and make sense of how are they supposed to impact and transform us today. So Father, would you take these words, would you plant them deep in our hearts? Would we become more like you? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.